Hello, and welcome to Implied Powers. I'm your host, Patrick O'Connor. Implied Powers is a podcast that focuses on national security and foreign policy. We thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Implied Powers, um, titled Machiavelli and the American President. Today, I'm joined with our special guest, Dr. Paul Edgar. Dr. Edgar is the Associate Director of the William P. Clements Jr. Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. He holds a PhD in Middle Eastern languages and cultures from the University of Texas and studies the historical origins of diplomacy, war, and strategy in pre-classical antiquity. Before entering academia, Dr. Edgar served more than 22 years as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army, beginning as a platoon leader and then serving in the 75th Ranger Regiment, deploying to areas in North Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Dr. Edgar enjoys teaching, research, mentoring his students, and attending his son's football games. Dr. Edgar, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we're super excited to dive into this conversation. Obviously, it's a, it's a very applicable conversation to today. Just to give some people some heads up, it's November 4th, and yesterday was election day, and we're still waiting to see these results come in. So I hope that gives some context to this story, but we're just super happy to have Dr. Edgar with us today. And yeah, just ready to get started. So Dr. Edgar, I wanted to talk to you. When I asked you about this about your topic of choice, you chose the topic on Machiavelli and how it plays into the American presidency. Could I just get a a brief overview of of why you chose this and and what you you would like to hit on today? Yeah, right. No, well, first of all, thanks for for having me. And uh, and thanks for your interest and and your peers' interest in these sorts of things. Because these things aren't going away, right? uh, we're talking about Machiavelli and, and uh, the Prince is, is uh, what I'm going to be talking about uh, today. A little bit of the Prince, not, not the whole thing. And uh, Machiavelli's uh, propositions about certain things related to the use of the military, use of, use of force, really, the use of war as a tool. And these problems aren't going away. Uh, they are constant. One of the things that makes um, Machiavelli's The Prince a classic is, uh, is not simply because it's old, Right, but but because we find that things that he wrote, whether we agree or, or disagree, and there is certainly lots of disagreement with Machiavelli, but whether we agree or disagree, he brings up problems that are perennial, and and that's what's useful about it. It, it helps us it helps us anticipate many of the problems that we've seen recently. It helps us anticipate the problems that we're going to see in the future. Um, it doesn't give us answers in a box, but again, by, by pointing things out before we have to encounter them personally, it, uh, it, it provides, uh, provides us a leg up if we choose to use it. And what are some of these problems that we have been seeing since the dawn of age with war and, and, and how, does, how does Machiavelli go about addressing these problems? Well, the, the one that interests me for our discussion today, at least. The one, that, one of the ones that, that always interests me is his warning that, uh, that the prince, and by the prince, we can just say a head of state or, or in a democracy, a, a group, you know, Congress that has to decide 
whether to declare war or not. It's, it's applicable not simply to uh, dictators and kings, but to, uh, but to anybody who is involved in the decision to go to war, to execute a war, uh, and then also to end a war, right? Because uh, wars have these um, very predictable uh, parts to them. They begin, they, they go on, and at some point they end. And all of those have, uh, navigating each, each of those is, uh, is difficult. But his, uh, his warning to the prince is that, uh, is that he should, above all things, be an expert at war. So, so why does he say that? You know, what, is it, what exactly does he say and why does he say that? And I think it's worth looking at. It's worth talking about what it means in general. Um, and we can even talk about maybe uh, near the end about the implications for a Trump second term or a Biden first term, whatever uh, it may be. But let me, uh, let me start just by reading. A, I'm not going to read a whole lot of Machiavelli, but let me read a few sentences. And this comes for those, of, for those who may want to uh, look it up and read it themselves, make sure I'm not uh, leaving anything out or uh, misquoting Machiavelli. Um, this comes from his uh, book 14 of, uh, of The Prince. He's, he writes, thus a prince should have no other object nor any other thought nor take anything else as his art but that of war and its orders and discipline. For that is the only art which is of concern to one who commands. And it is of such virtue that not only does it maintain those who have been born princes, but many times it enables men of private fortune to rise to that rank. And on the contrary, one sees that when princes have thought more of amenities than of arms, they have lost their states. And the first cause that makes you lose it is the neglect of this art. And the cause that enables you to acquire it is to be a professional in this art right? The, the art of war is, is uh, other people have used the same term and other people have, have said similar things too, right? But Machiavelli puts it in a way that, uh, um, that is so emphatic that you can't, you can't really get around it. You can't explain it away. It, Machiavelli writes hyperbolically in some places. He doesn't think that this is the only thing a prince should be able to do, but, but here that's the way he's writing this particular passage. And, uh, and that, should, that should get our attention. So the implications also, I think, for the United States are not uh, generally as dire. Uh, Machiavelli was in a very different time, a very unstable time, but un, you know, we, we think we live in unstable times and in some ways we do, but, uh, but we're probably not under existential threat, right? The United States is not gonna go away because Trump has a military failure or because Biden has a military failure. At this point in time though, in Machiavelli's life, uh, Italy and other parts of Europe, you really, you really may lose your whole little kingdom. The wars were regional, they were local uh, generally, uh, and you may lose the whole thing if you uh, were not prepared um, for war, war as they, uh, as they fought it at that time. But still, there's a lot that is applicable. Uh, for us, um, particularly for the United States, it's uh, you know, I, I like to think of war as, and I'm, I'm borrowing another term, a modern, a modern term, uh, actually, uh, at least I first read it, um, the investor Ken Fisher. So absolutely nothing to do with war. He calls the stock market the great humiliator. And, uh, and it occurred to me that, that really that's, that's even a better term for war, because war is the great humiliator. And uh, it does things 
that uh, that we don't expect. It acts in ways that we that we don't expect, and humiliates us. Even sometimes when we win, it humiliates us. So, and I think that's that's what we can take away from Machiavelli. It's not necessarily that the United States is you know that we're going to lose our state, the U- the U.S. But that if we don't understand war, if the president doesn't understand war, um, that if Congress doesn't understand war, and that, and that if, frankly, if voters don't understand war, uh, it will humiliate us. And it can even humiliate us, at least we can imagine uh, it humiliating us to the point where we did lose our state. Again, I don't think that that's a, uh, that's a, a real threat, certainly not in the near future, but, uh, uh, but it's certainly... Um, uh, you know, theoretically a possibility if, if uh, uh, people make enough mistakes over a long enough time, those are the consequences. Uh, well, let me explain the different ways war can humiliate us, even as a great power. Uh, and then maybe we can talk about um, how do you avoid it. I think war is, uh, understanding war is like walking a tightrope. Um, it's not simple. There really is a, a balance that you've got to strike. So you don't, on the one hand, you don't want to use force precipitously or unnecessarily, right? Because it's a, it's a waste of, uh, it's not just a waste of resources and time and effort and people, human, human lives, citizens' lives in the case of the United States. But the, um, but the consequences, once you start a war, you lose control of it. You lose control, absolute control of of the outcome. Uh, you still may win, uh, but as I mentioned before, you may not win in the ways that you think you're going to win. So you don't want to use force unnecessarily. You also don't want to imagine that you don't have to use it, right? So th- there have been leaders that think, well, if we just don't use force, except for maybe when, we, when we're absolutely forced to use force, uh, if we don't use the tool of war, at all, then we won't be humiliated by it. And, and that's not, you know, that doesn't work either um, because sometimes you get humiliated by wars that are, that are thrust upon you. If, if there was a side, if there were three sides to a tightrope, these are the three sides, right? The, you don't want to use it unnecessarily. Um, you, you don't want to not use it when you need to use it. And then when it is time to fight a war, you want to do it extremely well, right? You want to do it as uh, efficacy as, as, uh, as possible, um, efficiently as possible, um, and effectively as possible. So, and none of those things are easy. It's not easy to decide that it's time to go to war. It's not easy to say, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to sit this one out, and um, we think it's better if we don't. And then it's not easy to fight a war effectively when it is when you have decided to to fight so and we see that historically we see this uh this uh failure to do one or the other of these things uh in u.s history in uh in international history we see this happen all the time uh you know we you can think of um the yom kippur war and Golda Meir's decision not to initiate war with the Arab states, even when, even when she had pretty good intelligence that they were going to initiate against her, right? So she, she waited, um, and she did it for all the right reasons, right? You can't, 
you can't say that she was you know a, a traitor to Israel but but she lost her prime ministership because of it uh, and Israel was put in a in a even though Israel won the war they were put in a very uh, a very difficult spot politically and uh, and and eventually that's what leads to the Camp David Accords which which in the long run has benefited them but they were put in a position where they almost had to accept uh, the Camp David Accords because they had lost, um, not lost, be, because they had ended or the Yom Kippur War had ended in a way that was politically disadvantageous for them. Well, now let's get to the question. It's widely believed that good leadership requires surrounding yourself with experts. And based on trends that we've seen in this current administration under President Trump, how would you see Machiavelli viewing this idea of expertise and perhaps the, his critiques of the Trump administration? Right. Well, so that's, uh, that's, really the, that's really what we're trying to get at, right, is how do, you, how do you build expertise? How has this administration uh, built or not built expertise? Uh, or demonstrated expertise. Well, first, uh, you know, I think Machiavelli would, would uh, you know, he'd be shocked at the size of war, right? He'd be shocked by World War I and World War II, uh, the scale at, at which we think of war now, um, the, the scale at which, which we are faced with war, potentially. That, I think that would be shocking to him. Um, but I think he'd, he'd really recognize so many of the details or so many of uh, the ways in which war works, even if it is on a grander scale, especially here at the Clement Center um, in Machiavelli. You know, Machiavelli was, um, to say he was a historian may be uh, a little bit of a stretch, but he knew his history. You know, he knew his history as well, at, uh, you know, as well um, as it could be known at, at the time. He used his historical examples frequently uh, rightly or wrongly, he used history to to develop his um, his thoughts on all of these things. But he would recommend the the use of history to to understand war. Uh, that a president, I uh, will use you know we'll use the figure of, of uh, the president uh, to focus on. He would recommend that the the president study war, study how wars start. How do people stumble into war unnecessarily? Uh, how do wars end? Who has been uh, in a position to to end wars in a way that is favorable to them uh, politically and militarily, so he would he would recommend the study of history for the individual responsible for making the decision i i don 't know you know he he was trying to act like a uh, like a senior counselor right he's he wrote this uh, he wrote the prince almost you know you could almost say that this was uh, that this was his cover letter, a really long cover letter in order to work his way into a new administration. And, uh, and thank goodness we got a copy of the cover letter, right? So he would also, I'm sure, recommend, although he may put it differently, he would recommend that, uh, that somebody responsible for making these kinds of decisions surround themselves with people who are, who are knowledgeable and informed, who can expose things about war in general and about um, the current situation whatever that situation may be, wherever it may be, 
in a way that you just haven't had time to study yet as a, as a individual, you know, sort of executive level decision maker. So, you know, how, how is that? And then your follow on question about how has that, how have we seen that or how have we not seen that with the Trump administrations? So I think in some ways, some of President Trump's uh, decisions have worked in his favor. I think the, uh, the killing, the assassination of Soleimani worked in his favor. We didn't, we didn't know it was going to work in his favor, um, but, uh, uh, but he made that decision. And I think overall it probably worked in his favor. I think he was probably also uh, advised. Um, his, I think his instincts were probably in that direction anyways, but you know, there were, there were people, some of his advisors had seen Soleimani, uh, had been watching Soleimani do lots of, of really terrible things for well over a decade. Um, so I think he, he probably received informed advice that, you know, this is the, the right way to go at this point in time, even though, you know, others um, uh, who preceded him um, had decided, had been in the same position to assassinate Soleimani um, and chose not to. Um, and had advisors that, that told him not to uh, because they thought that it would, that it would escalate our uh, tensions with Iran unnecessarily when, when we didn't really need the, um, the distractions. So, um, so anyways, I think that, you know, that is a particular instance where his instinct and probably his advice uh, worked in his favor. But, uh, but overall, I'm not, um, uh, you know, I'm not convinced that his uh, consistent uh, incremental disengagement in different ways is, is wise. Um, I think it, it starts to break down the fabric of stability in ways that, uh, that don't cost you next week or next month, but they'll cost you next decade or maybe two decades later. Um, and unfortunately, he, you know, he, whether he gets in a second administration or not, he would not be around to see the consequences of that. But, uh, but that's, you know, that's my sense of, uh, of his approach to war and preventing war. It's, uh, it's two-sided. Some ways has been advantageous in some ways, I think in the long run will demonstrate that it has not been. One question that I've been thinking about is the role of the use of force for political ends. We've seen, I mean, in history, we have seen um, individuals in leadership who have, have used force um, for political gain. What is, what is your, take on how the Trump administration has applied this in, in recent months to this November election? Right. Well, I think, uh, I think that there's a, uh, a continuity between foreign and domestic politics when it comes to, you know, uh, we, we don't wage war on our own citizens, right? But we do use force on our own citizens. Um, and sometimes we use it rightly. And sometimes we use it wrongly. And I think that in some ways, uh, the struggle here is the same. How do you know when to use force internally for, for what we would consider appropriate political ends? The tightrope is the same. The, 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 there, are, there are certain dynamics that are certainly different. We, we could talk a long time about those, but, but let me talk about what is similar. You still need to make a decision about when it's time to use force. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that the, um, the movement to, to modify policing 
whether it's defunding the police or whether it's adding additional funds to to, to other resources that may that may um, or at least ideally will will reduce the necessity for police in certain circumstances. But uh, but even that movement, uh, e- even if you embrace that fully, at some point, as a political leader, you're still you you still encounter the question of when to use force to uh, uh, for for legitimate political ends. In this case, domestic political ends. So I'll talk about this movement briefly, and then I'll I'll transition to Trump. That's one of the things that I think the the movement. In, in largely in response to the, uh, the George Floyd killing, that's what they're going to have to struggle with at some point is, uh, is the same question. And they haven't, at least I haven't seen them. I haven't seen them answer it for their own sake, for, the, for themselves. And, and when, uh, when do you use this tool? When, it, when is it righteous to use force domestically? So, but as for, as for Trump, I think, of course, there have been a couple of times where um, where he's been, uh, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't call him abusive. Um, some would certainly disagree with me, but I would certainly call him tone deaf. It's like he didn't, he didn't, and either way, it's a failure, right? One, one is, one is, uh, it's really degrees of failure that we're talking about here, not, uh, not, uh, not whether something is a failure or not. So, so I think his tone deaf use of, uh, of force, mostly non-lethal force, was tone deaf, was not appropriate for the situation. You know, the, uh, obviously the, the incident where he walks across from the White House uh, to the church across the street. I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the geography of, uh, of Washington, D.C., I think the north side of, uh, of, of the White House. I may be wrong with that. Um, so, so, don't, so if I'm wrong, don't, uh, don't slander me in the press. But so they use force, right? Mostly non-lethal, or non-lethal force. Uh, but I think non-lethal force for uh, for ends that are that are not appropriate, again, that are tone deaf, especially given what was going on at the time, walks across the street to the church and uh, and brandishes the Bible, and that uh, that was not productive. That was an unnecessary use of force in in my estimation. Now, as we wrap up this episode. We have an election on our hands, and uh, there's there's a lot going around, a lot going on right now in this country. What can we look forward to as these two candidates in each circumstance, with one being elected and another being elected? How can we compare and contrast their uses of force or their their foreign policy going forward? Right. Well, I, I think you'll see. Um... Uh, with Trump, I think you'll see more of the same, and uh, and I do think that his his degradation of our alliances, you know, that and, and that's going back to the point, right? Studying war, and in, a hugely important part of war, whether it's in Machiavelli's time or now, a, a huge part of war are alliances. And does your balance of alliances support your international uh, your international political policy? And this is where I think, you know, this is, of course, as I've said, um, where I think Trump is wrong. He's incrementally wrong, but I think you'll see the same, um, the same course, incremental disengagement. You know, a few thousand troops here, disconnecting from allies there um, over four years. So, that, um, so at the end of a second Trump administration, you find 
our allies are, most of our allies are, uh, are less trustworthy. We're still there, you know, we're still, we're still connected. We're just not as connected as we used to be in the numbers that we used to be um, and as vocally as we used to be. And, uh, and that causes, you know, that, that, ca that can cause a lot of unease and people start looking for other options. You know, Angela Merkel even said it uh, very early on in, the, in the, this first Trump administration is that, is that with the U.S., you know, essentially with the U.S. acting like this, we need to look at other options. Some people would think that's healthy and, and it could be, but, uh, but it's a roll of the dice, right? If, uh, if you want to make sure that it's healthy, if you want to make sure that, that what you're getting, you know, you want to make sure that what you're getting in return is, is, uh, is better than what you're walking away from. And, uh, and that's not at all guaranteed. So, so you'd see more incremental uh, sort of breaking away from traditional alliances. You, you'd also see a, a more confident uh, president using force like with the, uh, in ways like we saw with the Soleimani assassination. And while I, th again, I think that uh, that was a good use of force, uh, was a good use of, of war, if you will, um, in that particular case, just because you're more confident doesn't mean you're you're more lucky, right? So, so maybe he learned from that. Maybe he learned uh, something instinctively about uh, about when to use force, uh, or maybe you know maybe he overestimates himself. So, uh, I'm not I'm not convinced that he's learned. So, so in my mind, that part of uh, of Trump's uh, decision making and use of force, use of war, is uh, is still a, a question mark. Does he get lucky? Or did he really learn something? I and mean, we just, it's hard to tell. Uh, and, and he makes good decisions in uh, small instances like that. I think, you know, I th my estimation of, uh, of uh, former Vice President Biden is that um, he's the one that he, he would do, uh, I anticipate a couple things. One, traditional alliances will, he'll try to get them back on track, more or less. He'll have to convince everybody that, uh, that things are back on track. And I think that's a good thing, but I don't know about, I don't know that uh, despite his experience, right. And his, his experience is substantial eight years as the vice president. That's, that's notable experience. Uh, I'm just not convinced that his, uh, his experience making executive decisions on the use of, uh, of the military use of, of war in a limited sense will be any better or worse than, uh, than Trump's, you know, I think it'll be, uh, it, it will be the same, just different. And, uh, and he could be humiliated as well. You know, his, his, his uh, you know, President uh, Obama, uh, I think President Obama did, for example, talking about war humiliating you, the President Obama had a mixed record, in, in my opinion. A, uh, uh, I would agree that his handling of the Syrian civil war and everything else that, that, uh, that came from that, I think he actually did very well. That was an incredibly difficult uh, situation to manage, to do, to find out, you know, kind of figure out what is the right thing to do, what is a productive or constructive thing to do, or if there's nothing constructive to do, is it's just better to stay out. I think he navigated that as about as well as anybody could. Libya, it was another matter. You know, I think Libya is a a, a failure. Libya is a humiliation, right? Um, Libya was the great humiliator for the for Obama's administration. So to imagine that that uh, that a president Biden would not be confronted in similar ways. Um, you know, I, I don't see him as a student uh, of war. Um, I see him potentially with, with, uh, with strong advisors, 
but I don't see him necessarily as a student of war who, uh, who can anticipate the problems that he's going to face or, you know, anticipate the variety of problems that he's going to face. So depending on the quality of his advisors and, and, uh, and how the wind blows, we'll, you know, we'll see. Well, we have a lot to look out for as we uh, head into these final decisions on the election. Dr. Edgar, thank you so much for joining uh, us today. We really appreciate it. Um, your expertise is invaluable and, and we look forward to uh, seeing how this all plays out. But thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Implied Powers. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes to come.